Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On the night of Monday, November 14, 1966, Merle Partridge of Salem, West Virginia, sat down to watch ABC's Evening News with Peter Jennings. As he watched the program, something strange began to happen. The electric hum of the TV increased in pitch. At first, it was merely annoying. But then, the hum became even higher pitched, and the TV volume increased. The noise filled the room, and the screen began to flash, casting rapid blue shadows across the dark, empty farmhouse. Merle cupped his ears in pain. He got up to switch the set off, but then... The TV screen burst as the overheated bulb shattered and came tinkling out onto the floor. Now what, he thought, as he heard his dog Bandit barking from the porch. He arrived outside where Bandit was going crazy. The dog was standing at the edge of the porch, barking in the direction of Merle's shed. The shed stood across the yard near the tree line. Suddenly, two large red eyes appeared in the dark of the woods. Bandit immediately raced toward them before Merle could stop him. He was too afraid to follow. Instead, he went inside, hoping Bandit would return. He would always curse this decision. In the morning, when he felt it was safe to examine the yard, he found Bandit's paw prints in the mud leading up to the shed, but they stopped abruptly, disappearing right where the red eyes had been. Bandit would never be seen again. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the Parcast Network. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Today, we're discussing the Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It's an enigmatic creature, considered by some to be an alien from another world or dimension. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information.
Point Pleasant, West Virginia has a colorful history. The French and Indian Wars were fought throughout the region, leading to hatred among the English settlers and the natives. With his dying breath, the murdered Shawnee chief, Cornstalk, cursed the land, saying, for this, may the curse of the Great Spirit rest upon this spot. That's what a racially insensitive school performance from 1923 claimed. But if certain residents are to be believed, Point Pleasant's greatest threat is not of this world. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, the escalation of tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union led both countries to develop new spy planes and other secret aeronautics projects. Not surprisingly, UFO sightings increased across the U.S., and West Virginia was not immune to this. However, in the Appalachian River town of Point Pleasant, those sightings would go on to include not just lights in the sky, but a creature that terrified everyone who saw it. On the morning of November 16, 1966, Miss Mary Heyer, 51, sat in her office at the Athens Messenger. This was the premier and one of the only newspapers in the region. Born in 1915 in Ohio, Mary had made the paper her home for the last quarter century. Her thick glasses slid down her nose as she worked on her latest article. Years typing at a desk had been unkind to both her eyesight and her physique, but she didn't care. She loved her job. Her phone rang twice a minute, always with someone calling in with a tip or asking for the weather report. But today, she would receive a series of calls unlike any before. People were talking about something much more interesting than the weather. This time, it was Merle Partridge on the other end of the line. He was a farmer, as far as Mary could remember. Once she answered the phone, he kept going on and on about some glowing red eyes out near his place last night. He said his dog, Bandit, was missing, and had she heard about anything strange going on lately? Well, if he wanted to talk about strange happenings, everyone was still gabbing about the alien spaceship that had supposedly landed on Route 77 a couple weeks before. Right on cue, there was the next earth-shattering call. Mary thanked Merle for his time and suggested that he come in and write his story down. As she picked up the next call, a chill began to run down her spine. This time, it was Linda Scarberry. Mary knew her. She lived nearby. Linda was frantic on the other end of the phone. Something had happened to her last night near the TNT area. Something unbelievable. What on earth was going on around here? The TNT area outside of Point Pleasant is now a nature preserve. But during the war, it was an explosives factory, complete with bunkers to store dynamite. By 1966, the bunkers stood empty among the trees. They are especially ominous, unnatural caverns that appear suddenly to those walking in the woods. Their rusty metal doors creak open, offering a glimpse of only darkness within. Naturally, the bunkers became a popular spot for teenagers to explore. On November 15, 1966, Linda and Roger Scarberry were driving through the area with friends Mary and Steve Mallette. They had circled the area once, stopping to explore the bunkers and to try and scare one another. 
This had provided for some mild entertainment, but ultimately, the area was rather dull. There weren't even many animals. They returned to their car and began the drive back into town. Roger tried to get his eyes to focus on something moving down the road. It was off to the side, near the woods. It was big. The way it was moving, wait, it was a man. But who else could be out here this time of night? He slowed the car as they moved closer to the figure. Conversation in the car had stopped. Everyone was now staring at this strange shape on the road. And as the headlights advanced, finally falling onto the shape, all were shocked at what they saw. It was a man, but wings grew from its back. It was brown and hairy all over, or were those feathers? Linda could see muscles bulging in its legs. They looked like human legs, though they ended not in feet, but claws. As the creature turned toward them, they saw its eyes for the first time. They glowed brilliantly in the headlights. It was like staring into the sunset. The car filled with red. Nothing else was visible on its face besides the eyes. Those strange hypnotic eyes. Mary blinked. She looked to her friends, all of whom seemed to be frozen in place. Suddenly, she mustered all the energy inside of her. Faster! You have to drive faster, she screamed. Everyone seemed to come back to their senses as the car turned out of the nature preserve and onto the empty highway. Linda begged of Roger, what was that? He didn't answer. Roger, what was that? She screamed again. Roger's eyes suddenly flicked over to a nearby billboard. The creature was there. Oh God, there it was again, and it could fly. It unfolded its wings from its back and leaped into the sky. They raced past the billboard. Roger kept his eyes in the rear view, his hands squeezing the top of the steering wheel. Behind them, the creature glided back and forth, tailing them effortlessly. The eyes continued to glow. Mary had not stopped screaming since they first saw it. All she could say was, faster, faster. Stephen buried his head in his lap. They sped along the highway as fast as they could go. They hit 80, then 90, then 100, as fast as the car could take them. Linda's eyes briefly left the winged creature to see that there was yet another surprise off to the side of the road. It was a stray dog, dead in a ditch. Still speeding, Roger spoke for the first time, shouting out, There! Everyone looked out the windshield to see the lights of Point Pleasant across the river. They were about to cross the Silver Bridge. As soon as they hit the bridge, the creature turned around, peeling off into a field. They had never felt so relieved. Mary Heyer found out that the young couples had reported the whole story to the police the same night, the night of November 15th. The authorities had immediately set out to see if the creature was still there, but they came up empty. Linda, who bravely joined the search, noticed that the corpse of the dead dog was missing. Perhaps she had seen the remains of Bandit and perhaps he was now digesting in the Mothman's stomach. Ultimately, Mary Heyer's paper, The Athens Messenger, needed more before they would report on such an outlandish tale. 
it would be the Point Pleasant Register that ran the story first on November 16th. The headline? Couples see man-sized bird, creature, something. Next up, the Mothman continues to terrorize Point Pleasant. And now, back to the story. On the night of November 15th, 1966, four young people driving around the TNT area of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, saw a horrifying winged creature. It chased them back into town. The next night, on November 16th, 1966, Marcella Bennett and her brother Raymond Wamsley were departing from the home of their sister on the outskirts of the TNT area when Marcella saw something horrific in the darkness behind her car. Marcella, who had her baby daughter, Tina, in her arms, started fumbling to open the car door. Red light flooded her vision. Something massive was standing behind her car. Her eyes, staring at the ground initially, scanned upward. She saw legs covered in feathers, then wings, but too large to belong to a bird. Then she saw the eyes, giant red eyes staring at her. Marcella screamed, racing for the safety of the home, but she fell, landing on top of the baby who began to cry. Her family raced to pull Marcella and the baby into the house. Inside, her young nieces and nephews shrieked as they saw the creature through the windows. Her brother Raymond pulled all of the blinds closed. By the night of Thursday, November 17th, 1966, over 1,000 people had gone monster hunting in the TNT area, searching for the creature. Police struggled to keep everyone safe amidst the random gunfire that would sound out from the abandoned buildings. Trigger-happy thrill-seekers, no doubt. There had been two sightings in as many nights. By that Friday, November 18th, Mary Heyer's paper, The Athens Messenger, finally ran a report on the creature. Any skepticism on Mary's part had disappeared after they received so many reports so quickly, all containing similar details. As the story spread throughout the region, other papers began to pick it up. Soon, the name Mothman was coined, though no one can remember who first came up with it. Mary Heyer, for her part, began covering the sightings in her column, Where the Waters Mingle. She was cautious in her reporting at first. All of the other local papers treated the sightings with a light touch, and she didn't want to seem like a lunatic. She wondered if this wouldn't just blow over, like so many strange occurrences before it. However, eight more Mothman sightings cropped up that November alone. The series of paranormal events was only just beginning. There had been multiple attempts to explain away the creature. Of course, many felt the young people had just seen a large owl. Robert Smith, an associate professor of biology at the University of West Virginia, suggested that the Mothman was a sandhill crane. That species can grow as tall as five feet with a wingspan of six feet. It's also known for its distinctive red head feathers. However, its long neck and skinny legs do not fit witness descriptions of the Mothman. Certainly vision and memory are both subject to the foibles of human consciousness. 
But it's also unlikely that large numbers of people would mistake an owl or a crane for a giant humanoid monster. Mary Heyer thought so, and she only became more convinced of the creature's existence as November wore on. Perhaps most alarming is the rapid pace of the sightings. Marcella Bennett's encounter took place not 24 hours after the Scarberry sighting. The Point Pleasant Register had run the Scarberry story earlier that day, but it hadn't described the monster with the level of detail that Marcella would that night. Two groups of normal citizens, two nights apart, without any interpersonal connection, and they claimed to have seen the exact same thing. This was followed by sightings on November 18th, 20th, 21st, 25th, 26th, and 27th. Though false accounts were to be expected, each report proved chilling for the fact that every witness described the same impossible glowing red eyes. December 1966 brought cold weather and a decrease in Mothman sightings. Not surprisingly, the creature failed to stalk anyone while they were wrapped up in a blanket warming up by their fireplace. However, one of the most important developments in the story of the Mothman occurred that month when paranormal researcher John Keel arrived in Point Pleasant. To the residents of the small town, he was an especially curious figure. Some said that he'd spent his 20s traversing Europe and Asia, uncovering treasure like a modern-day Alan Quatermain. Others said that he wrote articles about UFOs and little green men. When he showed up in town wearing a long black coat, suit, and dress shoes, some wondered if he himself wasn't some sort of alien or government spook. But Mary Heyer immediately saw him for what he was, an interested party willing to take the Mothman sighting seriously. According to John Keel's version of events, on his first night in town, December 7, 1966, Mary and a group of Mothman witnesses, including the Scarberries and Mallettes, led him on a tour of the TNT area. Among the witnesses was Connie Carpenter, a niece of Mary's. John took particular interest in her when he noticed that her eyes were inflamed, swollen even. She thought that perhaps she'd had an allergic reaction to something, but John had seen this before. Her eyes reminded him of a condition he'd seen among UFO witnesses. Their eyes were always red and swollen, as if they had stared into the sun. As the group made their way into the TNT area, Mary conversed with John. She asked him if he believed the witnesses' stories. At this point, she was their ardent defender. John wasn't overly chatty. His voice was flat and monotone. He asked for more details, wanting to know if the witnesses ever saw any lights in the sky or noticed any strange smells. She couldn't tell if he believed them or not. They arrived at the abandoned factory, which was at the center of the TNT area. Some thought that perhaps the Mothman could be using this building as a base of operations or a nest. In his report, John writes that only Connie and her fiancé, Keith, would accompany him inside. In the old explosives factory, John found a creepy collection of catwalks, steel drums, and crumbling brick. He shined a flashlight in every corner, but there was no Mothman to be found. Unimpressed, he headed toward the exit, Connie and Keith in tow. 
Suddenly, Connie let out a shriek from behind him. John whipped around to find her collapsed on the floor, sobbing nonstop. The eyes, they were there. She pointed to the back wall of the factory. While Keith comforted his fiancée, John ran for the back, shining his light into the corners. But there was nothing. It was just an old, rusted factory. And yet he was affected by Connie's abrupt change. What had brought on such a complete meltdown? Outside, they rejoined the group, who were experiencing strange occurrences of their own. They had heard a loud bang, followed by what looked like a figure escaping through the back of the factory. Any smells? asked John, excited. They answered in the negative. But Mary Millette had something else to offer. Her ear was bleeding. Back in Mary Heyer's office, she and John discussed his thoughts. He didn't believe in mothmen or little green men or anything else that people thought they saw. How did he explain everything that had been happening then? Well, he calmly explained to Mary that the citizens of Point Pleasant were experiencing these same phenomena that he had witnessed all over the globe. He believed that all supernatural phenomena could be explained by one thing, ultra-terrestrials. Beings made of pure light arriving from another dimension for some unknown purpose. He told her, sometimes you hear a pop and smell sulfur. Mary Millette's ears were concussed by the sound of one of them leaving. Connie's eyes were burned by the radiation. He said this as if stating boring fact. Mary thought that this was a lot to take in. But John went on to claim that light was the common denominator, that it was hypnotizing, that the ultra-terrestrials could reprogram people's minds with it. Throughout history, the light took on various shapes, the stunning appearance of an angel from heaven, the bright light of a UFO in the sky, the red eyes of a mothman. Mary expressed doubt but admitted that this was an interesting explanation for all of the strange occurrences in Point Pleasant, both recently and throughout the years. He thanked her for showing him around, providing her with his number and mailing address. He was to return to his home in New York, but he wanted to be kept aware of any developments. It was more than Mary had ever expected to deal with as an opinions columnist for a small-town newspaper. Fortunately, by the end of January 1967, credible Mothman sightings died out almost completely. There had been roughly 14 sightings in total, depending on who you believed. Less fortunately, things were about to get even stranger. Two months later, in March 1967, the UFO sightings began. Up next, Mary becomes a true believer as she witnesses a UFO in the skies above Point Pleasant. And now, back to the story. On March 5th, 1967, about three and a half months after the first Mothman sighting, Mary Heyer received calls from locals reporting sightings of strange lights and objects in the sky. There was Alice Bradshaw, who claimed that she saw a saucer traveling adjacent to Beyond Street in town. Dolly Grady called the next day, saying that she had seen the same thing. 
And on March 20th, multiple citizens called in to report strange lights hovering over the Silver Bridge. Mary wasn't sure what to make of it, but she called John Keel, with whom she had developed a friendship. He was to revisit Point Pleasant and investigate the new phenomena. What happened next filled Mary with such awe that she felt the need to write her experience down in an affidavit dated June 21st, 1967, and signed by a notary public. According to John Keel's reports, on April 6, 1967, John and Mary drove south of Gallipolis, a town just across the river from Point Pleasant that is functionally part of the same community. The hills there gave them a full view of Point Pleasant. They parked their car on a hill overlooking the river valley. Mary felt a little silly, but John carried himself as if he had done this a thousand times before. It was a cloudy night, with winter still in the process of handing things over to spring. Mary expected that even if there were strange lights in the sky, they wouldn't be able to see them. But suddenly, she was proven very, very wrong. Up in the clouds, a perfectly circular, especially bright ring of red light appeared. It turned on as if someone had flipped a switch. Mary gasped. John smiled at her. Mary watched with astonishment as the light moved across the valley at a slow pace. John, still totally confident, got out of the car and stepped out onto the hill. Removing a flashlight from his coat, he flashed it three times in the direction of the light. Instantly, the light became bright white and responded with an identical three flashes. According to Mary, the light then rose upward before disappearing. Any reservations Mary may have had about local sightings were completely destroyed. The UFOs were real. Following this event, Mary's column, Where the Waters Mingle, became almost exclusively about paranormal phenomena. On April 9, 1967, it read, A retired Mason County schoolteacher is the latest person to relate a UFO sighting. Wally Barnett, 77, Point Pleasant Route 2, said when he first sighted the object, he thought it was a plane crashing on the hilltop in the back of his home. In a letter to John dated the same day, Mary wrote that the luncheon ladies had started to judge her for writing about this sort of thing. She didn't care. She knew what she saw. On May 19, 1967, multiple Point Pleasant residents reported seeing a bright red UFO in the sky, so bright that some referred to it as flaming. Two of the witnesses even claimed that they saw the Mothman enter the craft. And though UFO sightings would continue for the rest of the year in Point Pleasant, this was one of the last significant appearances of the Mothman. By November 1967, Mary began having dreams about the UFOs. Writing to John, she also spoke of other dream imagery that she couldn't explain. She saw Christmas presents floating in the river. People, too. No, not people. Bodies. On December 15, 1967, Mary stopped at a drugstore off Main Street in Point Pleasant. She ordered a coffee and sipped it at the counter while watching people come and go outside. It was a busy Friday night. Many were doing their Christmas shopping. 
Mary was waiting for traffic to clear so that she could drive to the hospital. And then the ground shook. Mary's first thought was that the damn UFOs were finally attacking. What the hell else could that noise have been? She exited the drugstore to find the street flooded with people running south. Off in the distance toward the bridge, she thought she could see smoke. She began walking in that direction, following the crowd. She quickly made her way down Main Street and toward the Silver Bridge. Her stomach flipped as she realized something. The bridge, normally visible from this far out, wasn't there. It was gone. The ominous feeling she had been nursing since November came to a crescendo as she arrived on the river. The Silver Bridge had collapsed. It was rush hour on a Friday, and so the river below was now filled with cars, or at least what was left of them. Tons of concrete and steel had toppled down, sending the automobile straight to the bottom of the river. Most terrifying of all, Mary began to realize that the river was full of not just wreckage, but Christmas presents. And among those, there were bodies floating with the same lifelessness as the debris around them. Her dreams had come true. And just over a year after the Mothman had appeared, tragedy had struck. Had the Mothman been warning the town? Was it warning Mary? Or had there never been any attempt to warn at all? Was it merely a harbinger of dark things to come? Or if John Keel were to be believed, was this part of some grand, sinister design by aliens from another dimension? Regardless of John and Mary's theories, by the next day, facts were starting to come into focus. The bridge, built in 1928, was not designed to carry the load of 1967 pre-Christmas rush hour traffic. It had given way, and by the time all the bodies were counted, it was revealed that 46 people, including children, were dead. Years later, John Keel ascribed the Silver Bridge collapse to the aliens that he claimed had been meddling in human affairs throughout history. Of course, there is no evidence of this. It was an old bridge. The suspension failed. Mary Heyer died in February 1970, just over two years after the Silver Bridge incident. Those who followed her work were quick to assign her sudden illness and demise to the supposedly sinister forces at work on the periphery of her life. But her obituary confirms she expired after a four-week illness, likely pneumonia. Any suggestion that her death was somehow the result of foul play or that the bridge collapse was planned is likely an example of what is known as agenticity or patternicity. These terms, coined by noted skeptic Michael Shermer, describe the human tendency to see patterns where none exist. Or, as Professor Sander Vanderlinden of the University of Cambridge puts it, quote, many of us are uncomfortable with the notion of randomness because it lacks meaning. The only thing it communicates to people is uncertainty and a lack of agency and control over what is happening in the world, end quote. Ironically, it actually may have made the people of the Ohio River Valley feel better about their lives to think that they were being monitored by the government, or abducted by UFOs, or stalked by a mothman. 
It made them feel better to think that their beloved Mary Heyer, who had written down their stories for 27 years, had been taken out by cosmic foes, or that 46 people died because of an alien conspiracy, not because no one had thought to inspect a 38-year-old bridge. Point Pleasant in 1966 was not an exceptionally exciting place. As John Keel writes, it contained 6,000 people, 22 churches, and no barrooms. It was, therefore, a place that was exceptionally ripe for the germination of a conspiracy theory and eventually something bordering on mass hysteria. And indeed, in the decades to come, the Mothman legend became central to the culture of Point Pleasant. The town's tourism industry thrives on visiting Mothman enthusiasts who are invited to visit the local Mothman Museum and view the Mothman statue erected outside. The museum contains a plethora of information and artifacts, including writings from both John Keel and Mary Heyer, news clippings from the sightings and the bridge collapse, and various artist depictions of the creature. And, beginning in the early 2000s, the city started to hold an annual Mothman Festival in which the whole town invites tourists to come and experience a tour of the TNT area. There is a Mothman costume contest, live music, and more. Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, was adapted into a 2002 thriller starring Richard Gere, reviving the legend for a new generation of audiences. There is seemingly no end to the public's fascination with the strange occurrences of 1966 and 1967. John Keel called this the year of the Garuda. The latter word was his catch-all term for any sighting of a winged humanoid taken from the creature of the same name that appears in various South Asian mythologies. And it's John Keel who we must examine closely, as his book, The Mothman Prophecies, is the font from which many of the stories of this period are drawn. It was also a fantastic source for this podcast. It's a fascinating but flawed work, at first presenting itself as a skeptical investigation into the initial Mothman sightings, but quickly devolving into a hodgepodge of conspiracy theory. The stories get more and more difficult to believe, Keel brings up many other aliens with no verifiable sources. They have names like Aphole, Aflos, and Princess Moon Owl. Keel admits that this all sounds insane, but he doesn't just leave it at that. He believes that these are all avatars of his ultra-terrestrials and that the real aliens are just taking on outlandish forms to throw people off. All of the Mothmen and UFOs seen by the unsuspecting public are merely manifestations of these beings who are made of light and can thus take on any form. Without any sense of irony, he writes things like, isn't it strange how photographic devices always seem to malfunction in the presence of UFOs? Of course, he may very well have been aware of the irony and simply harnessed the insanity of his interview subjects for profit. Skeptic Robert Schaefer, discussed previously on this podcast, claims that Keel admitted this to him at a UFO conference in 1980. He writes that John Keel knew that approximately 99% of what he wrote was absolute codswallop. And yet, in a letter to Schaefer in July of 1980, 
Gray Barker, Keel's contemporary ufologist, wrote that, quote, I often have the frightening impression that Keel may actually believe in a great deal of this stuff, end quote. While it's impossible to know exactly what Keel really did or didn't believe, some of the accounts in his book are verifiable, such as the Scarberry and Bennett sightings. While no one can know with certainty what exactly those two groups of people saw on those two respective nights in November 1966, newspaper coverage of the sightings, as well as modern interview footage, reveals that they were real individuals who reported their stories to the police. And, as we've mentioned, the giant wingspan, the lack of a neck, and most of all, the unimaginably large, bright red eyes are consistent across each account. Why would so many people be so adamant in reporting these sightings to the police and to Mary Heyer? The most obvious answer in this case is, well, because they saw something that truly frightened them. As discussed, the rational explanation doesn't track. Fear can lead us to exaggerate what we see, but it is unlikely to do something so extreme as to turn an owl into a mothman and for multiple people, no less. Therefore, we give the believability of this particular case a 7 out of 10. We don't know what the people of Point Pleasant saw, whether it was a cryptid, an extraterrestrial, Keel's ultra-terrestrials, or a man in a suit. But we believe they saw something. Did this creature bring prophecies of doom to the inhabitants of Point Pleasant? Has it been doing so all over the world for millennia? Ultimately, we have no way of knowing for sure. At least not until it appears again. Next time you find yourself on the outskirts of town, surrounded by empty forest, look to the sky for flashing lights. Sniff the air for the smell of brimstone. Finally, peer through the darkness where you just might find two piercing, hypnotizing, impossibly bright red eyes staring back at you. Thanks for listening to our story on the Mothman of Point Pleasant. You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial is written by Greg Castro and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. 